Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 131, The History of Europe, part 5. Now then, the last time we looked at the broader European context was a good while ago, in fact about a year ago. And I think it is time, gentle listeners, for some more. So over the next three episodes, we'll spend a bit of time looking at the 14th century in Europe and what it brings, and bring you up to date with Europe roughly at the start of the reign of Henry IV so that we can put him to the context of the world in which he lived. So we could make this episode a general economic survey and a discussion about technology and innovation, and the next two all about politics. Shall we do that? Anyone out there object? No? Then let's do that. I have to be honest and say that in the discussions we've had about the Great Famine of 1315 and the Black Death in England, we have introduced the main themes. You might keep three themes about the 14th century in your head if, unlike me, you are capable of holding that many thoughts at the same time. Number one is the general background of stagnation and decline. After centuries of expansion, broadly, the limit of that expansion has been reached. Secondly, a series of nasty shocks hit the body economic. The Black Death is the most obvious, but war is another. Its impact much debated, but there without doubt. But the third is about innovation, change and progress. Let's have a hack at the economic stagnation and decline thing first, since you should be reasonably familiar with that. The basic thesis is that somewhere near the end of the 13th century, the medieval warm period came to an end. What follows has no specific name, so let's call it the medieval bog-standard period, which precedes the Little Ice Age that hits us sometime. It's one of those areas where finding more than one historian that agrees is like finding a needle in a needle stack. So, 
Some people think that the Little Ice Age followed hot on the heels of the medieval warm period. There are others who think the Little Ice Age doesn't really kick in until the 16th century, others who think it's a load of baloney, and yet others who focus on the availability of chalk ices. But the balance of probability is that for a while now, we are in the medieval bog-standard period. The story is that by 1300, Europe has reached the limit of its commercial expansion, and that the writing is on the wall well before the Black Death hits home. In 1314-17, to the first population shock happens with appalling famines all over Europe, driven by disastrous harvests. Grain prices rocketed despite the population falls. There was a general flight by landowners away from domain farming back to renting out their land, because it insulated them from a poor market. Combined with the general fall in the number of people, labourers going into renting farms, the result was a dearth of free labour and increases in wages. So the value of land fell in England, France and Scandinavia at least. Cloth production in Flanders fell, wool exports from England fell. Florence suffered severe setbacks with the fall of its great banking houses, the Bardi and the Peruzzi. At the same time, the second theme of the evil impacts of war is something we've been through in some detail in its most catastrophic incarnation, the Hundred Years' War, and its impact on France. We've heard about the routiers and the free companies that caused destruction up and down France, and I won't add to the pain we've been through. But I will remark that there are plenty of historians who minimise the impact of war. Yes, they say, the descriptions of visiting fire and sword are bad. But how widespread are they really in medieval times? How many people do they actually touch? For the odd disconnected campaign or chevaucée, this might be true. But for the Hundred Years' War, you would suspect it was continuous and lasting. The same also applies to the constant warfare in northern Italy. And it wasn't just the direct impact of war, there was also the impact of taxation on economic activity and the sucking up of bullion out of circulation. Though there's a slightly circular argument here, since at some point, presumably, a lot of that coin does get re-injected into the economy. But in places like England, there's a real shortage of bullion that doesn't help the economy grow. So far, so good. There is a but coming. But sticking with the yeses for a moment, it's also easy to link economic setbacks with political crises and class warfare. There's the Peasant Revolt in England in 1381, and how far that was caused either by economic hardship or at least disappointed economic and social expectations. The struggle for power and resources is evident from the start of the 14th century, and the Peasants' Revolt was not the only example. The Jacquerie in Paris is one of the most dramatic a popular rising that for a while held Paris in thrall. Other examples in Flanders and Italy were as much due to local politics as to national wars, and in this we should include the guilds. You could see the guilds as a way of pooling resources, but like the Hanseatic League of Towns, they were of course primarily a way to protect the power of the members and reinforce the control of a powerful established oligarchy. In Flanders, there were revolts from the weavers and artisans who found themselves opposed by the French and Flemish nobility with brutal consequences in Bruges, Ghent and Ypres. In Florence, the same thing happened in 1345 with a revolt by the Woolcombers, followed by the much more serious revolt of the Chiompi, the very poorest rank of labourers. The Chiompi, of course, 
were excluded from power being outside the guilds, and they forced their way into power in 1378. But within a few years, the traditional guilds and town nobility had rubbed the revolt out, and in the chaos, seriously undermined the idea of the Italian Republic. Going back to that but, though. Like everything this far away, there are many, many ifs, buts and maybes. OK, so it's pretty clear that population falls away, pretty dramatically, so we can bank that. But in terms of economic decline, well. So as evidence of an economic malaise, I've mentioned the decline of the cloth trade in Flanders, rather cheekily, in best debating style, failing to mention that over the same period cloth production in England rose, which to an extent explains both the decline of cloth in Flanders and the decline of wool exports from England. Another example is that while some towns show clear signs of decline and setback, others in the same region show growth. As Barcelona struggles, Valencia grows. As Bruges wines, Antwerp crows. As Lincoln laments, Hull hoolies. For every tale of failure, there's a tale of success. The super summary, in typical mealy-mouthed historian mode, is that the 14th century saw a series of economic setbacks. But a clever entrepreneur could make plenty of money, and if you were in the right place at the right time, then the phrase, crisis, what crisis, would apply. One more caveat about the next bit then. We're going to talk about the profile of long-distance trade. But just bear in mind that while this trade is more obvious, more exotic and more written about, most trade in times medieval was local. Bearing that in mind, though, while things were going well in the 13th century, European trade developed in two broad theatres, the North and the Mediterranean. In the North, there were groupings. A lot of trade was concentrated around the narrow seas between England and the Flemish ports. A lot of train, a lot of trade came from and to the Baltic. The Hans towns were a large collective of trading towns across a very wide geographical area. I'd always thought of the Hans towns being in a little place just round the corner from Lübeck in East Germany. But go on the line and look at a map, and you'll see that while Lübeck might indeed have been the biggest of them, there were towns in the league all the way from the northern Low Countries to the Baltic, and quite a way into the interior of Europe. The experiment of the Hanseatic towns was a novel way of beating the pain of competition, avoiding the brutal cutthroat war that went on in the Mediterranean. The league started from Lübeck, which had gained valuable trading concessions in Novgorod, Bruges and London. Now, rather than doing the normal thing and viciously fighting off other towns, Lübeck invited others to join, as long as they joined up to exclude other towns outside the league. By the 1360s, there were over 70 towns in the league. They had their own diet or council and were quite capable of launching wars just like a separate nation. In the 1360s, for example, they launched a successful war against Denmark, ending up with control of the valuable herring fishing grounds of the Baltic Sound. The Hanstowns carried the raw materials of the Baltic East, fish, furs, timber, wax, honey, East German grain, to the major centres in England and Flanders, and carrying cloth back on the backwards trip. Things worked very differently in the other major trade network, the Med. There, in the 13th century, the three great trading cities of Pisa, Genoa and Venice connected Spain and northern Italy to the Levant, Byzantium, Syria, Egypt, and through them to the more distant Far East. 
these three trading towns slugged it out for supremacy, mixing in Barcelona and Valencia from Aragon on the Spanish coast for good measure. Especially in the 14th century, with the more difficult economic situation, this feels like a bit of a zero-sum game. And if not quite that stark in reality, the traders behaved as though it were. The Venetians organised great convoys to travel to the east, protecting merchants who were part of their clan, gaining concessions from the Byzantines to set up trade centres and monopolies. The greatest catastrophe of all the sack of Constantinople in 1204 was at least in part a Venetian play for trade. Competition was crude and cutthroat. By the end of the 14th century, the Pisans had clearly lost this battle for first place, leaving Genoa and Venice to slug it out. And at the Battle of Chogia, if I've pronounced that right, which I doubt, Venice confirmed its supremacy by destroying the Genoese fleet. Although Flanders was the most advanced centre of the cloth trade in Europe, the 14th century was a time of serious challenge for it from England, but also from northern Italy, and particularly the towns of Tuscany. Both centres learnt from their Flemish competitors. Edward III specifically enticed Flemish weavers over to England, and the Florentines also learnt from Flanders how to mix wool with other textiles to produce higher quality products. And northern Italy remained the centre of European silk production until the 15th century, but Luca lost its supremacy to Venice, Florence and Milan as the trade spread. In the 13th century, these two networks of trade, the North and the Mediterranean, traditionally came together through the Brenner Pass over the Alps into northern Italy. And on the way, they met at the great trade fairs of Champagne in France. These trade fairs declined dramatically during the 14th century, and locals at the time saw the reason as being political, with the integration of Champagne into the French royal domain. But in fact, it was more likely two economic forces that came together to end the age of the fairs. The first was that the Genoese and Venetians created a sea link between Flanders and England and the markets of the Med. It's worth noting that in a time of very slow land travel, the sea was less something that separated markets and more something that connected them. Now, there were some positive developments in land travel during the period, mainly through the building of more bridges, which reached its height in the 13th century. But still, land travel was a cumbersome affair. Much freight was carried by pack animals, and with a fair wind they might manage 30 to 40 miles a day. A lord and his retinue would manage much less, given all that problem of housing those folk. So maybe 25 to 30. Right down at the bottom was the drover, taking animals to market. Here's an example which survives, which I don't know, just gives you a nice image. John the Barber, in 1323, set out from Lynn in North Norfolk with 19 cows and a bull, 313 ewes, 192 pigs and 172 lambs, helped by a shepherd and eight boys. The little team took 13 days to get to their destination, which was 130 miles away, an average of just 10 miles a day. That's a lot of meat and fur on the hoof. Essentially, the point is that the basics, the quality of the roads, had changed very little. They were still muddy, rutted, winding nightmares. 
we do get the development of the wagon in a couple of ways for a bit of technology update with the large-scale arrival of the four-wheeled carriage designed for comfort. One improvement was the addition at the front of an articulated pair of driving wheels, which meant that the turning circle of the wagon was dramatically reduced. And then we get the arrival of suspension. The body of the carriage rather than resting directly on the axles and therefore being the proud recipient of every single jolt, rested from chains hung from posts. And then in the next century, the town of Koch in Hungary would improve on this with leather straps, hence the arrival of the word coach from Koch. Top fact of the day. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Anyway, the point of all this was that land travel didn't get any faster, and therefore the logical route from the north to the Med was by the sea. But the Pillar of Hercules at the western entrance to the Med by Gibraltar proved a difficult obstacle for the square-rigged cog. Going through from west to east was a doddle. The prevailing winds pushed you through no problem. But getting back, the winds were in your face, and you were basically in the proverbial poo. Somewhere in the 14th century, the cog was given a second mast, called the mizzenmast, equipped with a triangular lateen sail. For reasons I have never understood, though have had explained to me on many occasions, the lateen sail allows you to tack, and therefore make way against the wind. Together with increased hull sizes reaching as high as 600 tonnes for the biggest Genoese hulls, you finally had a cost-effective competitor to land travel from the north to the Med. Incidentally, while we're on ships, the period saw other innovations in navigation. The perfection of the portable ship's compass, and the use of Portilani, books that described navigation routes in detail, handed down from master mariner to master mariner, guarded, held secret, very valuable documents. And those of you who remember Shogun and Richard Chamberlain will understand. Those of you who are under the age of 200 will not. It seems a long time ago now, but I talked about two reasons why the Champagne Fairs lost their appeal. The second reason is much more complicated, to do with credit, banking and a resultant change in merchants' behaviour. Banking and credit were a great achievement of the 13th and 14th century, as I think we might have covered before. And however poor the public perception of bankers might be now, commerce couldn't grow without it. It used to be that the merchants would travel to the Champagne trade fair with pack horses loaded 
with heavy barrels of silver, ready to buy the goods they needed. If they didn't have the money they needed, then tough, couldn't go. Or, of course, worse, they might have the money, but get robbed by villains and thieves on the way, and then game over. But then some bright spark said, Look, I've got loads of extra readies. I'll put an agent in champagne, make sure he's got loads of silver coins. I'll give you a letter. Give that letter to him when you get there, and he'll give you the cash. Meantime, of course, the bright spark made the same arrangement with a whole load of other merchants going to champagne with their wares, charged them all a fee, made a killing, and bought himself a Porsche. The system developed further. Bankers charged a small fee for changing between currencies. Plus, as the sums of money deposited grew, merchants paid bankers a fee to keep it safe, and allowed them to use the money while they had it in their care, so they could make money lending it to others. And so banking proper was born. Despite the collapses of the big Tuscan houses in the 14th century, it was here to stay. All of this gave merchants a chance to change their behaviour. The accepted practice had been that a merchant travelled with his wares, met his customers, cut his deals, came home. But if he could get hold of credit all over the place, why bother? It meant, after all, that his business wasn't really scalable if he had to be there with every deal. So the bigger merchants developed a network of agents, and the merchant owner stayed at home. A postal service even developed in Italy called the Scarcella, with weekly departures from Florence to Avignon by way of Genoa which in turn meant, why bother to tip up to trade fairs? Business and exchange was now being done point to point, rather than at these consolidated events, and thus the great day of the Champagne Fair was over. I say bigger merchants, but of course most merchants didn't have the capital and size of business to establish and support such a network. And so we get the concept of companies. In Italy the idea had been around for a while, that a number of different merchants would get together over a particular ship's cargo to spread the risk, and that idea, of course, had spread. The company was a much more permanent arrangement, a group of people coming together, all sharing management, risk and profits, usually people in the same family, or in the same house or block of flats, who broke bread together. And that's where the word company comes from. Kumpane, which means with bread. And by the way, in 1202, a chap called Fibonacci wrote a book introducing the concept of Indian numbers rather than Roman numerals. By the late 14th century, the numbers we use today were finally replacing the old Roman numerals in commerce. Plus, the chap invented some very clever sequence of number or something, did he not? So even longer ago in this cast, I talked about three themes. Economic stagnation. Tick. The depredations of war, tick, and innovation and change. We've had two of those, and now we've segued neatly into the third, with the development of banking and a couple of innovations. And one of the key innovations was in the textile industry, which was by far and away the largest single industry after agriculture, and therefore crucial to general trade growth. So I am told that division of labour is one of the key aspects of industrialization. And during the 13th and 14th century, we see the start of that process through the putting-out system. Now, there used to be a cloth merchant who went around buying up everyone's cloth that they'd made in their houses. Those individuals had themselves bought wool, made yarn, 
got onto the dyer to get it dyed, done the weaving, and so on. All a bit difficult to make a high-grade product economically viable if an individual is doing all of this rather than having specialists. And so the cloth merchant became much more than what he had been. He became an entrepreneur who was the essential cog around which a putting-out system operated. And the putting-out system, which has been described as a factory scattered throughout the town. For example, in the late 13th century, there's a chap called Johann Boinbrook, a cloth merchant in Flanders. Johann bought wool from Cistercian monasteries in England. When it arrived, he sold it to a bunch of weavers, each of them buying a bit of it, and they took it away to sort, card, spin and weave with their families. The weavers then sold the unfinished cloth back to Johann. Johann then sold it to a bunch of fullers who cleaned the cloth and then sold the finished cloth back to Johann. And finally, Johann sold the finished cloth to a bunch of dyers, who then sold the dyed cloth back to Johann. And Johann then sold the cloth. Now, at the start of the process, Johann might have bought the wool for £7. At the end, he sold it as dyed cloth for 40 There are a few points to make from that. First is the specialisation of labour. It's clearly nowhere near a factory system as yet, but there is a level of specialisation and division. It's worth noting, incidentally, that the cloth we're talking about here is the high-quality stuff. Most people would still wear clothes made from coarser cloth they produced themselves. Secondly, the merchant is now much more an entrepreneur, but through this system he manages his risk rather nicely. At each point, if something terrible happens to the market, he can stop, not buy back, and leave the risk with the other partner in the chain. And finally, you can bet that at each stage, Johan did his best to screw each of these partners on price, and here was where much of the conflict occurs, particularly between the weavers and merchants, hence the rebellious history of Ghent, Bruges and Ypres. There is another innovation in addition to process and business. In the late 13th century, we get the introduction of the spinning wheel from the Near East or India, the big benefit at time was speed, apparently. It takes a number of spinners to provide enough yarn for one weaver. Well, the spinning wheel halved the amount of time you needed to spin. Now, at this stage in wool, the quality was a bit sucky. It was a bit lumpy until we get later innovations, so its introduction was slightly slow and uneven. New looms take over. Now, what I know about weaving can be written on the back of a postage stamp, but essentially a horizontal rather than vertical loom therefore used by two weavers simultaneously passing the shuttle back and forth, and therefore getting a wider cloth. Make any sense? In Italy, in the cotton industry, the specialisation process developed still further. Cotton was much more dominated by low cost and high volume. And in Italy, individual cities began to specialise in the complicated parts of the process. Now, in the cotton industry, the spinning wheel was much more fully integrated since it didn't adversely affect the quality of cotton thread, in fact, quite the reverse. It's about this time in the 14th century that we see a change in fashion affecting the industry. White had been the traditional colour of mourning, but black now took over, leading to much greater quantities of black cloth. And while we're on dyeing, it's around this time that Marco Polo's explanation of preparing indigo allowed European dyers to make proper use of the dyes they imported from India, and therefore new vibrant colours hit the market, although with indigo at quite a price.
Now, a welter of technology changes. I have one more to go. The water-powered blast furnace. Now, when I was a lad, I spent a fair proportion of my life reading science fiction books about how we were all going to blast off to the stars, and so I did my level best to choose all the scientists so I could go with them. Until some sensible teacher kindly explained that since my chemistry and physics marks were so small, they needed an electron microscope to read them, maybe I'd better concentrate a bit more on the arts. And so here we all are, years later, with the History Podcast. You might well then ask, why on earth am I sharing this piece of frankly irrelevant information? And the answer is, I don't know. Except to labour the point that when I tell you something technological, handle it with care. It's probably tripe. And I'm going to tell you about something technological. The water-powered blast furnace, the porter-wowered fast blurness, which I'm sure involves chemistry and for which I'm sure you have been waiting these 131 episodes. But... Water power made a massive difference to the daily lives of medieval man, particularly in milling grain. It was made possible by the creation of mill races and navigation weirs, and during the 14th century the spread of water power can be seen by the growth of conflict between people wanting to use the river for navigation and those wanting to use it for power. Now in super summary, I am reliably informed that the introduction of water power to drive the bellows into the blast furnace meant you got significantly higher temperatures in your furnace. The result was that iron had a 4% carbon content, which as a result melted at much lower temperatures. The production process involved the molten metal running through channels into square moulds where it cooled and formed your basic brick, which was bought by smiths and forges. It's the single channel running into as many small square moulds that looked to someone like a sow feeding her piglets, and hence the arrival of the term pig iron. And so here we have the arrival of cast iron, to add to the previously only available wrought iron. So what, I hear you say, especially when I tell you that it's a while yet until equipment is directly moulded from cast iron. Well, the whole process used much less labour, and therefore reduced the cost significantly, as well as producing a purer iron that was much more easily worked. So there we go. More about the economic development of Europe than you ever wish to know. And I suspect, possibly a repeat of the odd item. Oops. So, my thanks to this week's donators. Philip, a monthly how exciting thank you. Samuel, how could I not thank you. To Greg, Kathy, Matthew, Shane, Michael, Carl, Kirk and Mark. Thank you very much indeed. And thanks to everyone who comments on the website, or on iTunes, or joins the Facebook group or indeed all of you for listening. Good luck, everyone, and have a great fortnight.